Hello everybody, hi and welcome to a very special SEPA Discussers, just in time for the Christmas break. I'm delighted that today we are here to discuss this wonderful book, Yemen in the Shadow of Transition, Pursuing Justice Amid War, by Stacey Philbrigyadov. I'm delighted Stacey is here today to talk to us about the book, it's fantastic, I'm really, really honoured to have her here, and we've got two wonderful discussants as well, Azal Al-Salafi and Vincent Durak, two Yemeni specialists who've written and studied and engaged with these questions, who are here today to engage with Stacey a little bit and to share their thoughts about the application of this wonderful text. First of all, Stacey Mabruk, congratulations. It must feel good to have it out in the, um, I was going to say in the flesh, but uh, in, in a physical form. It's been many years in the making, I know, so uh, congratulations. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it, please? Thank you. Yeah, sure. It is great to have it out. Um, and it does represent a lot of years of thinking about Yemen um, and writing about Yemen. And I, But I want to talk a little bit about like why I decided to write it as a book. Because, you know, things always start with puzzles. And for me, this started really with an observational puzzle that for years I thought I understood pretty well what some of the weaknesses of the transitional process after the, the Arab uprisings, after the Yemeni revolutionary movement uh, in 2012 to 2014, there was a transitional process that, that, you know, I had really written about as laying the foundation for the current war. And I, I felt reasonably confident in that interpretation. But as I began doing some collaborative research with Yemeni colleagues over the past several years, on peacebuilding work in Yemen, I was seeing that people active in peacebuilding work were describing the transitional process differently and a little bit more positively than I would have expected. And so that was the sort of empirical puzzle that I wanted to unravel. Why is that? What, what did they mean or what were they praising when they were talking positively about the transitional period? And then there was also a sort of theoretical or methodological puzzle, and I opened with this in the introduction. Uh, my colleague, Kevin Dunn, um, in international relations, uh, was making a short video in 2019 for the International Studies Association and asking a lot of people, scholars and activists, to respond to the question, what the field of international relations would look like if it put people first. And I was really struck by the, I mean, it was a provocative question, right? I mean, it sounds kind of cheeky in a way, but it really isn't. If you sit down to think about methodologically what it would look like to put people first. And for me, that meant moving away from the abstraction of Yemen as a, an object of analysis and really thinking about Yemenis and what Yemenis are doing. And that coincided nicely with the, the turn to collaborative peacebuilding research with Yemeni activists and advocacy organizations and understanding um, from the perspective of Yemeni peacebuilders what their, what their projects were about. So that's sort of, those are the two questions that were working concurrently in my mind as I was approaching writing this book. It doesn't just draw on the recent research, though. It really does draw on research that I started in 2004 and have been continuously engaged with. And one of the things that is a sort of intellectual through line through that process is a focus on civil actors. There are plenty of analyses of the Houthi movement, the Southern movement, um, the, the battle lines between conflict actors, certainly uh, the role of proxy dynamics and external actors in the conflict. But I really wanted to think about what civilians are doing that isn't simply surviving. I mean, it's commendable enough that people are surviving conflict, but people are also in political projects in, during conflict. And so the focus on what civil actors are doing during the conflict is what I think of as, I guess, the novel content of the book. For me, however, that's connected to these older justice struggles that were largely ignored or repressed by prevailing authorities and institutions. And so that's why the book does historically look at the role of Yemen's political parties, um, the, the disappointments that come from the partisan sector, the role of extra-partisan political movements like the Southern Movement and the Houthis, and looking at each of these um, developments through the lens of the justice claims that actors were making and the way those justice claims were or were not engaged by authorities. Um, the actual argument that I end up making, though, is that 
the work that's happening now is a continuation in many ways of that justice work. And so I say, I think on page uh, 17, the central argument of this book is that decision makers can and should take as a model the substantive engagement or justice work being done by Yemeni civil actors in local communities across the country. Rather than waiting for a national settlement, of course, my phone just rang. Rather than waiting for a national settlement from the top or one brokered from outside, civil actors are already engaged in the enactment of justice projects in real time. However, and this is critically important, their ability to scale those projects up beyond the local will depend upon an adoption of the peace learning approach at the international level that recognizes the central importance of civil actors. So what I'm trying to say here is that the international peace brokering approach does not adequately account for civil actors. Actors and as actors in this multi-actor conflict, um, it doesn't take the work of civilians seriously enough, uh, and it doesn't learn from the successes. And there are successes, right? So Yemen is always framed through a kind of deficit lens, through uh, state failure, state weakness, what isn't there, what isn't happening, what people don't have. And I think that there are a range of local-level successes. Um, and assets that should just as much or more inform the international approach to the conflict in Yemen. So that's what I'm trying to do with the book. Amazing. I think I can stop there. Sure. I mean, I could listen to you talk for a long, long time about this, Stacey. I think it's fascinating. And I think you've done a wonderful job of pulling together so many different strands, so many different disciplines, so many different ideas. Um, I think you've just fleshed out some of the the complexities that are going on here in the, in the Yemeni case, in the intellectual case, in the normative case about scholarship, I guess. Um, so I, mean, I think it's wonderful. I'm really, really pleased to... To, to have it in my library and to be recommending it to students. But people aren't here to listen to me wax lyrical about how good it is. So let's hear other people wax lyrical about how good it is. Uh, Azal, what are your takes? What's your take on, on this book then, please? As, as a Yemeni who's been involved in some of the things that, um, that, that Stacey's been talking about, what are your, what are your thoughts? Um, she focused on the subject of Yemen because it's rarely uh, research, rarely spoken about in academia. Um, I personally, when I, I studied my master's, we've an, an Arab master's program. Uh, we've tackled Yemen just three times over the whole year, uh, which was a shame. And I had to advocate for you know, the subject and beyond the political or the humanitarian crisis of Yemen. Uh, so I really do appreciate that. And, and the fact that the subject of justice and transitional justice is uh, as an innovative way uh, by Yemeni stakeholders is a, is a very important um, um, spectrum, I would say, that needs to be tackled. Uh, use really justice is tackled in uh, on the course of the judiciary and nothing that is beyond that. Um, and honestly, like when I was reading through it, uh, through some of the chapters that uh, was provided to me, it just proved uh, and it somehow solidified many Yemeni scholars and researchers and thinkers' um, work. I, I reflected my work that I had done, uh, my master thesis in 2020, and I uh, worked on justice um, and its linkage uh, with restorative justice and the approaches. I titled it um, Justice in Education and Pathways Towards Restorative Justice Approaches to Light uh, the Long Tunnel of Child Violence. And I simply take uh, children as a case scenario of a bigger picture. Um, and focus on the links between education and uh, justice, formal and informal uh, structures. Um, and how, for example, these institutions have developed over time uh, to explore pathways of protection, restoration, and reparation of failed systems and communities. So, and it is just a thesis paper that not so many people have acknowledged except for the for the for the little people who supervise uh, the process and the people that I have shared my paper with and it's not something gross like 
and and coming um yeah, like reading the the book and having something so substantial developed by professor stacy uh, it 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 helps it helps civil actors and especially researchers yemeni researchers to have uh, a louder voice to be amplified their voice our voices to be amplified and our ideas and thoughts um to be somehow validated it's unfortunate that i say this but uh, without 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 the international voice we our voices would be somehow dimmed and i really do appreciate that uh and and i i pride from i pride for the the the, the subjects uh, very how delicate you've re, you've um you've approached um yemen and and how sensitive you were in in writing and and making sure that the the narrative is very inclusive uh, of the different actors and the different communities in Yemen as well so this is this is what i wanted to highlight personally thanks azal and um, vincent you're coming at this from a completely different angle here so um let let's hear yeah. your general reflections and then i'd like to kick back to to stacy sure 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 um well if my role here is to sing the praises of the book i'm very happy to do so i'll be from a different perspective um <laughs> you know i was going to begin by saying i enjoyed reading it um i'm not sure you enjoy <laughs> reading you know this sort of material but you know from a i guess from an academic intellectual point of view i very much did i really don't know where to start i mean it's wonderful from beginning to end that's the truth um but i mean just picking up on something as al said it is striking and you kind of forget i mean you know, obviously i've done a little bit on on yemen i don't want to make too many claims about that but it is extraordinary the neglect of the country both in scholarship and on every level i mean as as azal was talking i i i remembered um you know i teach as you know uh, simon uh, on the, the west bank every year mm. and in a room full of Palestinian students who know next to nothing about Yemen and who will freely admit that i can think of occasions when i've given classes and i've been lucky enough to do so in in beirut in morocco um and again you mentioned yemen and it is as if you know we're talking about some remote part of scandinavia you would not think that we're talking about the arab world no i mean of course everyone overstates you know the unicity and the homogeneity and there is none of the arab world but one might think that you know closer to to the setting there'd be greater awareness there isn't so you know whatever about the fact that you know my my fellow irish nationalists don't know a whole lot about yemen it's striking that even in the region this is mm. uh, a country a conflict that is so neglected so uh, so little understood um and i guess Uh, yeah again there's so many things that I I I I liked about the book um but two things strike me when one as you say Stacy it draws you know, not just on a sort of discrete uh, set of researches that you've conducted in the last few years that you want to show off you know there's there's a narrative that goes right back to you know the decades more or less before the uprising and then through and in doing that and forgive me for singing your praises again but i mean you know you're drawing not only on the established literature but you know your own original field work and that to me is valuable but what is really really valuable and again i can't speak to it the way as al can but is the ways in which the book gives voice to the yemenis as i understand it and anyway you know that granular that detailed understanding of perspectives that simply don't come through in kind of conventional the Saudis, the Iranians, the Houthis, the Iraq, you know, whatever it might be, you know, grand, you know, after a few hours at least you can grasp that if you know nothing to begin with. But the, the, the material on, you know, the day-to-day justice work that you described, the peace building at that very local community and communitarian level, levels, um it's just not something that you see in the scholarship anywhere and i'll stop in a moment uh, simon but what i also like and it's actually something i'd love to hear more from you um is that all of this is done um 
within a very, very interesting theoretical framework. And, you know, theory is something that sometimes is an add-on. We all know, <laughs> you know, you need to say something about what's your theoretical framework. I don't have one, but I'll find one. Um, but here, what's really interesting to me, and I think a potentially added value of the book, is that emphasis on the limits, I mean, the weaknesses, not limits, of the conventional model of, you know, kind of peace building, post-conflict, top-down, normative assumptions, you know, and I, I like, even though I'd like to hear more, um, you know, the, the way you then draw on Sen to address that, you know, okay, we've got a different way of framing all of this that doesn't require that somebody comes in from outside or shouldn't require that somebody comes in from outside to impose a given understanding of how things should develop. I mean, you know, so much of that has been done to the region on so many levels for so long and enough of it. But it's, you know, I really like the way you, um, to coin a phrase, you know, de deconstruct the conventional approach, but then offer something else by way of an alternative that runs through the, the book. I'm going to stop there for the moment. I hope that made some it did. Thank you, Vincent. And thank you, Azal. I think you've both raised some really, really important points, pulling in so many different directions, which, again, point to the strength of the of the book. And it, it strikes me, Stacey, that, that you can give this book to lots of different people to read. People from lots of different backgrounds, be they intellectual, be they geographical, be they demographic, be it age, gender, you, you name it. And people will read different things into it and will take out different types of conclusions on the basis of of the many different things that are going on in Yemen, many different things going on in the book and the, and the different ways of reading into it. So I think that's another of the many, many strengths of, of what you're doing here. But before we, we go on to a, a theme that I wanted to tease out, do you want to come back to anything that Azal or Vincent have, have just said, Stacey? Yeah, a, a couple of things. So I, I think the first thing that I'd like to say to Azal is that you're in the book, right? I've read your work and I've cited your work. And I want to talk a little bit about the politics of citations here and the politics of what we think of as constituting the literature on Yemen. I recently had a, a I did an interview with Mark Lynch about this and, and he asked me what resource I thought people who study the region should be engaging more. And I didn't have a single resource, but I had a type of resource, right? Most of the research that's being done on Yemen right now is being done in a policy context, in think tanks and advocacy organizations. And that doesn't mean it's not research, but it isn't getting cited. And that bothers me a lot. So I spent a lot of time with that material in this book because it's being written predominantly by Yemenis and predominantly in English. So why the heck aren't we citing it? Why aren't we reading it and letting it inform our work? It should be really central. And that's what got me thinking as I, as I was reading more of this work, I started going back and actually interviewing Yemeni researchers about what they see their research work as doing in relation to these justice claims. Because I had this underlying sense, largely actually from some kind of casual interactions with some Yemeni researchers, that they saw the representational work that they were doing as substantive justice work, that it was in part an antidote to a really empty logic of representation at work through the international peace brokering process. And so to write about something was to bring it to view, to, to represent it for the rest of us, so to speak, um, and to shape knowledge, right? That shaping knowledge of Yemen is actually a, a, a political project um, and one that is tied to, to claims about justice. So I wanted to say that to you as I was like, it's on purpose that I'm reading and engaging that, that I wanted you to be a part of this conversation um, that that is important. <clears throat> in terms of the theoretical stuff, to, to Vincent's point about the theory chapter, look, I put the theory chapter as a discrete little chunk at the beginning of the book for anyone who really doesn't want to read it. It's possible to skip that chapter and read the stuff about Yemen. And that was a deliberate choice. But it's not separate, actually, in my thinking or in how I approach the material in the book. Uh, and so I hope people will read it, right? So what I've done in the theory chapter is I've taken um, 
insights from the capabilities approach, which really comes from development economics and seems very far the field of, uh, of the kind of peace building literature, to think about a form of transitional justice that might be grounded in both liberal and non-liberal claims, or that might be able to recognize communitarian claims. Because it strikes me that communitarian claims will are already a part of the justice uh, projects that are being articulated in Yemen and will be a part of post-conflict claims making. So the kind of the narrowly liberal approach of transitional justice institutions won't be enormously successful. That itself, though, my decision to kind of turn there was really informed by observing Yemeni activists and their their changing approaches to solidarity in the transitional period and in transitional institutions, their resistance to being like fitting in one box and checking off that box, speaking as women or as Houthis or as and you know as anything as any one dimension. I think Yemenis were very articulate about what we might regard as inter intersectional identity um, without necessarily even using that term, although more people are starting to use that term explicitly. So the theoretical um, framework is really trying to articulate like what are the what are the institutional conditions that can enable overlapping consensus. And when I look at successful Yemeni peace-building projects today at the local level, they are enabling people to identify agreement on injustice without reaching agreement on justice. So I think the idea that diverse folks are going to converge on a single positive meaning of justice is extremely unlikely, but that a lot of injustice can be addressed by developing consensus around something needing to change. And I try to give some examples in the last chapter of the book of some projects in which I see that happening. So let me stop there. I think that's, that's a place maybe to turn to your question, Simon. Well, you did a really nice segue into it, actually, because I was going to ask you to just wax a little bit about justice. Because I think it's very easy for us to, to hold justice up as this universal but then scratching beneath the surface, it's it's far from that, and it's it's complex, it's nuanced, it's messy, it's contested, um, it's problematic, but it's so important. And I think the 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 title, just just the title of the book, does such a good job of of pointing to these complexities. I, I love the the shadow of transition, sort of looming large, but then the aspirational component of justice in the context of a looming shadow and war. But there's still something to be sort of striving for, this sense of reaching for this elusive justice. But can you just say maybe, um, maybe we can go to Azal first just on this. Um, for, for a Yemeni, what is justice? This sounds a bit like an essay question, really, doesn't it? But um, when someone says justice for Yemenis, I mean, what does that mean to you? Um, I have been thinking about this uh, question for the past four years, uh, since I started working on my thesis. And I, I come from a, a low background, so justice is at the core of my work. Uh, so when I think about equality, I tend to think about it from a justice uh, perspective than the equality of the sexes or the genders and et cetera, because there could be so many disparities in, in, in definitions and how how do we uh, ensure um, that human rights is being served, for example. Um, but I think at the moment, justice and specifically transitional justice uh, could be uh, defined as uh, communities um, um, path to peace building process um, instead of it being a more elitist traditional uh, pathway towards the peace building process. Uh, this is so far what I have been 
um, observing uh, over the past few years is that Despite the fact that this is yes traditional, it has been practiced in different countries, and you know we are taking these best practices uh, that have been deemed successful and trying to apply it in a very complex context of Yemen. However, we we haven't been seeing we haven't been seeing so much advancement or a positive impact, um, except for the fact that it's broadening of our, our understanding of, of the crisis in Yemen. This is, this is yes, it's established and we are growing. We are, we are understanding more of our context. And I remember one time um, I, I had an interview with Maisa uh, for one of my researchers, and she, she, I told her, like, how can we achieve justice and how can we achieve, like, human rights, for example, uh, and women political participation to the fullest in a very meaningful way. Uh, and she said there will always be gaps uh, until we make sure that we have um, studied Yemen in each and every inch of Yemen so that we can understand what the whole concept and we can reach out uh, we can reach out to the uh, to the community properly us as civil actors and activists and advocates and thinkers and and teachers uh, but now, uh, as we are on the process of accomplishing that, and we are studying Yemen very heavily, and I love the fact that uh, Professor Stacey um, really and intentionally and very mindfully explores this and, 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 and makes sure that, yes, there is enough research. There are people that are contributing to the change of Yemen, maybe not so clearly now, but in the future it will definitely happen. Um, but... What do we do with all these content? What do we do with it? What is transitional justice? Uh, how is it being? Tra how is it transforming? How is it inclusive to the people? Um, and that's why I focus a lot, for example, on restorative justice as a pillar to transitional justice because it ensures that the community is part of it. Is part of the justice. There is an accountability mechanism. There is um, uh, ensuring that there is uh, uh, reparation for example, and, and this is needed, and it cannot be managed um, on, on, a, on a hierarchical level. It needs, it needs a bottom-up tool, and the bottom are the community, are the people, are the women, are the children as well. Uh, um, so for me, it, it is just as if the community understanding what they want, knowing how they are being, um, being served, and knowing what their needs are, uh, and also being educated, I think the gap here, which also Stacey mentions in a couple of it's like all of a the sudden there's this there's like knowledge about Yemen has ballooned. You even use this this term ballooned, uh, and I was like, yes. I, I, I personally, over the past year, I have encountered I, I think around seventy papers coming out on about Yemen. And uh, this is overwhelming, and we need to ma to manage how to disseminate it. We need to also make sure that it is properly categorized, properly introduced to the right stakeholders, to the right donors, uh, to continue the work. But we we still need to make sure that um, we we humble ourselves in the process, and we tone down when you go back to the root of the issues and to the people who are usually suffering from, from all these, um, unfortunately, propagandas and, and complexities of the, of, the, of the crisis. Thank you again, Stacey, I must say. I, I must thank you again for, for all the work that you're doing. Oh, I'm enormously gratified that you recognize um, what I'm trying to do with the project and recognize um, the, the intent behind surfacing so much of the work of civil actors. Uh, if I could say something, Simon, about the, Please. Yeah. The, the what justice looks like piece. Um, you know, my firm conviction in the theory chapter is that there isn't a transcendent thing called justice out there, uh, but that justice can be found in the process of pursuing justice or in creating institutional and practical mechanisms through which people can pursue justice. That the pursuit of justice itself is kind of the, the closest that we come to the thing. Um, and in particular, processes that allow people to make diverse claims alongside and with each other and to build solidarity or to build agreement are, are enormously important. So I give an example in the book. Um, 
uh, of a community in Mocha that was um, under the practical jurisdiction of one of the militias, and his school building was destroyed. And the par- many parents um, wanted the school to be rebuilt quickly to get their boys back in school, and some parents wanted their girls back in school, and some conservative parents and the militia itself were staunchly opposed to gender integration. And so the sum result was that no one was going to school because there wasn't a facility that could accommodate all of these rival claims. Um, and there was sort of a, a temporary suspension of education in this community. And a, a civil society organization, which was actually not allowed to call its work peace building because of sort of practical limitations imposed by the militia, rebuilt the school with facilities for boys and girls. So the conflict about uh, whether or not girls and boys can be educated together was not resolved in this instance, right? There was not kind of broad social agreement on that. But there was a practical muddling through in a way that allowed diverse preferences to be accommodated, right? It allowed social conservatives to, to feel that it was okay for kids to go to school in a because they weren't together. And it allowed the parents of girls who wanted their daughters educated to feel that it was okay and that their preference to educate their, their girls was going to be uh, accommodated. And it, all of that occurred um, because each group was able to express their preferences or express their priorities about what a just outcome would look like. And this CSO was able to meet that need. And that was not coordinated by an international peace building organization that might not even have been recognized as the work of track actually peace building. That might be too far off of the formally recognized peace track account. But it was something that I think did some real work in that community, both in the pursuit of justice, but also in terms of building the the foundations for, for social peace in the medium to long term. Again, you've preempted a question I was going to ask. So I don't know how you've got into my mind, Stacey, but um, well done. Um, with a different hat on, I direct a peace institute in, in Lancaster. And it strikes me there's a lot of a lot of similarities here with the discussions of justice that you've got going on in the book and uh, the stuff that you're doing as Al in your work and your, your sort of uh, your research as well to, to Johan Galton's ideas of positive peace and obviously very Absolutely. aspirational, right? So far removed from the, the traditional track to um, negative peace efforts. And Vincent, I wonder, given that you've, You've seen these broader quests for justice slash peace in a number of different contexts beyond Yemen. I'm thinking about your time in the West Bank in particular. I mean, to what extent do you think this is about that aspirational peace as well? I mean, does, does peace add something to it? Do you think justice is, is doing everything that it needs to? Is there something, something more? Um, that's some question. Sorry, it um, is, isn't I'm it? not sure. I, I, yeah, I might, you know, do the academic thing and answer a different question, but uh, I'll pretend to answer yours. Um, I mean, a few things strike me that might relate to, well, I think do relate to other contexts as well. And um, I'm struck by a couple of things that Stacey said, both uh, at the beginning and just now in relation to, you know, questions of, of justice, peace and justice and I mean, one is, um, I think you said, and I think you said in the book as well, you know, that, that different parties can agree on injustice, but not so much on justice. And that then goes back to the, the notion that there is, the highly questionable notion that there is an idealized, you know, transcendent vision or version or concept of justice that's available to us if only A, we could define it properly and B, then discern it where we hope to discern it. And you know, the reality is, and I think what explains um, you know, some of what you were, you were saying is you know, very obviously understandings of justice are subjective. And you know, it raises a few different further questions for me then. You know, how, you know, given that subjectivity and given that the subjectivity in relation to justice is linked in the Yemeni case, to the very origins of conflict, 
how do you pursue transitional justice or any justice when conflict continues? And that relates to the West Bank. Um, and it relates, albeit increasingly in nonviolent terms, um, in the north of my country. You know, they, the conflict hasn't gone away. The causes of the conflict haven't gone away. They're very different understandings. The same goes for Israel-Palestine. Um, very different understandings of how and what justice would look like um, remain at issue, remain contested. And the the other point that, uh, or the other phrase that you use, Stacey, um, and this one of which I've always been fond, is muddling through. And, you know, I wonder if in contrast to, you know, the... the Assumption. One of the many assumptions that that are brought to conflict situations. Um, I wonder if, in contrast to the notion that there is some idealised version of well, peace as well as justice, um, uh, you know, that muddling through is the best we can do, whatever that might look like. But then the question is, how do you, how do you define and discern and understand muddling through? But it seems to me to be more practicable, at least, than you know, waiting for or working towards the unachievable. Well, and I think one of the things that just emerged so vividly for me over the past few years of working on on these peace-building projects or these collaborative peace-building projects is the recognition that people just aren't waiting, that it's actually the height of hubris to think that Yemenis are waiting uh, for some grand plan from the top, brokered from the outside, et cetera. Like people actually have to meet their needs in their communities and they're doing it and they're doing it in some, with some negative coping mechanisms, absolutely, but they're also doing it with some positive, uh, some positive breakthroughs. Now, a lot of that is highly decentralized. And as everyone well knows, uh, Yemenis have actually been talking about decentralization and the opposition was centrally concerned with decentralization before the uprising. Um, and there's a history of some successful local development work that was highly decentralized in the past. So, you know, decentralization is not a new conversation, but this is a very ad hoc and unplanned decentralization that is definitely not um, the way anyone would have wanted it to happen. The question is, how do you maybe then build from that practical decentralization to identify, well, what, what are the, um, the things that we might be able to learn from or keep or transport? You know, um, I know, you know some areas learning from other areas. My concern, of course, is that lived decentralized governance over a sustained amount of time makes the State building or state rebuilding challenge enormously difficult. And I think it's not even really a settled issue among Yemenis whether or not one Yemen is desirable, uh, whether or not, and then there's a second practical question about whether it's practicable, and then there's a, a related question about what the international community will tolerate in that in that regard. So um, now I'm like pretty far afield of the justice question and into some pragmatic, um, I don't know. Uh, questions, but um, I'll leave it there. And yet all of that is bound up in these very ideas of muddling through, because muddling through in one set of questions very, very quickly, you're muddling into a, a whole new set of questions, which are a completely different ballgame if we're going to completely mix our metaphors here. But I guess that, that goes back to what you were saying, Vincent, about the the ambiguity of some of these these processes and and what your your book is all about i guess they see the the human struggle for justice and for um for an improved quality of life if we're going to put it down to its basic um basic tenets right it's about people wanting to live better lives in the context of all of these different types of of challenges be they war be they um competing visions of political life, be it environmental disasters. Please, go on. I don't think that I fleshed this out fully enough in the book, but I think one of the implications of the book is a critique also of the international discourse on political inclusion and what inclusion means. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that there is, I mean, we could actually just choke on I mean, 
the amount of inclusion language that exists, but it's in stark contrast to the actual, I think, lived experience of exclusion in, in many cases. Um, what many, many Yemenis, and particularly Yemeni elites, even, uh, and I'm not just talking about political elites, but people with the kind of educational and social capital to, to access and represent themselves in a number of different kinds of international institutions, what they have access to primarily is voice, not decision-making. And I think as we look at transitional institutions in the future, that's a really important, like what gives people a stake in deliberative practices is the belief that their participation in deliberation might shape outcomes. And I think that um, the, the way inclusion is operating in track three peace building with regard to Yemen is extremely weak in that regard. And, and you know, um, I've, I've railed in some ways against UN Security Council resolution in 2216, which is the authorizing framework for peace building. I've argued, you know, that it has a, it's an unrealistic portrait of, of the war. But one other thing that it, it does is it incentivizes deal-making between armed antagonists, uh, a deal-making that doesn't feature um, decision-making uh, impact for, for civil actors. So I do hope that that is, um, that that's, that this book offers some opportunity to rethink what people mean by inclusion and what more meaningful, I even feel like when I say what more meaningful inclusion would, it, would entail, that's using the language that I'm finding so dissatisfying. So um, let me just say uh, civil actors should have more decision-making power over the future processes that are, are going to reshape their country. And that was fascinating. And I think it's a, a theme that needs to be discussed more, not just by, by you, but by, by a number of people with regard to ideas of inclusion and exclusion um, in Yemen, of course, in more localized um, contexts in Yemen and also beyond, not just in, in, in the region we're looking at, but in um, in the the north of your country, Vincent, in my country, in Stacy's country, uh, inclusion is is the the billion dollar question, I guess, and the nature of that inclusion. But I'm I'm conscious that we've been going for for quite a while now, and we could very very easily go for quite a while longer. But I know that um, that one of our our panel have to duck out some point soon. So, Azal, is there anything that you'd like to to say by way of sort of concluding remarks before we go back around to Vincent and Stacy? Um, thank you, Simon. Um... Well, I, I think one of the things that um, I can observe as well that may have not been explicitly mentioned um, by Stacey's book, uh, which is um, there is a fear in Yemeni. There's still a fear in Yemeni. There's hope and fear at the same time. Um, fear uh, from maybe when change happens, there's a lot is going to change as well. Uh, on a societal level, uh, in terms of like social norms, traditions, religion, um, we can see now that there is a lot of radicalization in all aspects of, of what is happening in Yemen. And, um, and, and through this radicalization, there's like few people that are looking for the light. Um, but it, it, there's also the burden of if we change, we need to make uh, a grandiose change. Everything needs to change, not only the country. In order for the country to change, in order for us to, to find peace, we need to also find peace within our culture, within our, um, our, our norms and heritage and all these things that build the community, build, build, uh, build the country. So my, this is this is where my my question would be. I instead of putting a comment or you know just because the questions will continue and 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 I love the fact that in Stacey's book it, it provokes many of these uh, of of these subjects uh, beyond of what's, what's been written. Um, what is next? How can we innovate? Uh, what is the role of of the next generation? Uh, will transitional justice um, co continue be, continue um, the same, or will we find other 
tools to ensure peace happens? Uh, will we be inclusive? Um, will we remain elitist when uh, during like the decision making process? Um, and um, Yeah, will we will we acknowledge that we are in fear? Will we acknowledge that us as Yemenis, when when we are, um, uh, when we want to make change, that we will have to give up a lot of our uh, traumas uh, and and forgive one another and um, find the positives in the negative? I would say there's so much more to unpack. There's so much more to unpack, to be honest. But um, so far, we start with the questions, and then we look for the answers. And that I, I would like to end with this. Thanks, Thank you. and I think that's your next book sorted. Then, Stacy, answering those questions. Yes, <laughs> uh, Vincent. That would be great. <laughs> anything you'd like to uh, to to add to this before we hand back to Stacy? Yeah, I'm I'm wary about concluding on something that might sound negative, but um. Uh, I absolutely agree with Azal that the the book raises all sorts of questions. And in a way, this goes back to both my starting point and at least in the structure of the book, Stacey's starting point, you know, which relates to the deficiencies of kind of conventional approaches to peace building, conflict resolution, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I think we've pretty well established at this stage, I'm not going to flatter you anymore, how well you illustrate, you know, the gap and explore you know, vo- Yemeni voices, but um, what I was left with then is, you know, where do we hope to see signs that the sort of approach that you're advocating in such kind of nuanced and granular fashion might actually manifest in, you know, in the approach or the work of external actors. And I mean, I don't want to overstate their significance, but they're not insignificant. You know, particularly those who, well, I guess everybody claims to be attempting to resolve the conflict, even if patently they're not. Um, you know, but I guess it doesn't matter who I'm talking about, external actors more generally. And you don't obviously have to answer that question, but it's it's the one that I'm kind of left with. It's like, you know, do I just have to buy copies of your book and then fly around the world and force people to read it? Which I'm not going to do, by the way. Okay, well, my publisher will be sad to hear that, but, um, you know, I, I, all joking aside, this is an absolutely important question. There is a whole real politique that this book doesn't address, right? There are other books. In fact, Biden has one of them, and I recommend it. Um, but there, there is a lot of other work on the role of the external actors in particular, um, and I'm, I'm glad for that. I did write this book because I felt like it represented a dimension of the story that doesn't it does, did not yet exist in the existing literature, um, and also because I have a fear. So I, I have a fear myself that things have gotten so bad in the context of the war, war crimes, a deep hardening of sectarian rivalries that is almost unrecognizable to those of us who worked in the country in, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, it's, it's really quite different how much this, has been, this polarization has been institutionalized. I'm really concerned about that. And as I know, this means that there's a, a real need for restorative work, not simply, um, you know, not just legalistic responses, but also a deeper social restorative work. My fear is that um, the next step, if international actors are able to buy into uh, a, a real post-conflict process, and I can tell you, you know, that I, I have been part of conversations. I, I know that the planning for post-war transitional justice actually was ongoing from very early in the war itself. That's a weird perversity, right, is that the planning for the post-war happens during the war. Uh, as early as 2015, I was involved in conversations about post-war reconstruction. Um, reconstruction more than justice, but still. Uh, so that those conversations are ongoing. And if the international community commits to that kind of process, my fear is that the only injustices that they will pay attention to are the ones that were produced by this most recent war. And that that will be a real mistake. 
because Yemenis are animated by a much longer set of injustices. And going back to the puzzle that I started with, part of what people were praising about the transitional justice uh, component of the national dialogue in, in the transitional period between 2012 and 2014 was the ability to talk about and name those earlier injustices. And those aren't going to become irrelevant because worse things have happened since. Uh, it all is part of part and parcel with a reckoning uh, with injustice, with violence, with repression um, it, that is intersectional, that does not originate only from the state or from the regime. And that reckoning, I think, um, calls for a, a broader reassessment on the part of international actors about what post-war planning uh, they need to be doing now. I think that's that's so very important and uh, an important point for us perhaps to end on. Unless, Stacey, you have a final one-line message of no, no message of hope. Oh, okay. One line, one oh, line message of hope. hope. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I've said this many times before. I'll say it again. Uh, Yemen makes me despondent. Yemenis do not. Right. Yeah. Yemeni people actually uh, definitely encourage hope and optimism. But if there's one thing that I hope international listeners in particular might take away from this, it would be that we can all work in our local context for a reconsideration of UN Security Council Resolution 2216, because the peace building framework is broken right now and uh, Yemenis deserve better than that. Perfect. That was what I was looking for. The one line message of hope. And for anyone listening to this in the podcast format, as I'll just put a big red heart up on the screen when Stacy was speaking, which I think says says a lot. And on that note of love and slight optimism and hope, a huge thank you to all of our panelists today. First of all, to Stacey Philbrickyada, thank you. Congratulations on the book. And thank you for giving us your time to, to reflect on, on this amazing journey of scholarship that's culminated in this fantastic monograph. So huge congratulations and thank you. And thank you both Azal and Vincent for your time, for your insightful comments, for your reflections and for, uh, for, for singing Stacey's praises. It's very much deserved, but it's an honor to have you both both here. And as always, thank you for listening and watching. Take care, everyone. Thank you.